It is a warm, breezy Monday afternoon here on the west coast of Florida. My name is Joel Tillis, and you are listening to The Soul Trap. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in and listen wherever, whenever this broadcast finds you. We pray that it finds you in good health, good spirits, and most importantly, on that good and narrow way. Well, it is uh, exciting to come to you once again. We're looking forward to an exciting summer, a fun time. Uh, I think it's going to be a real blessing. Some of the different shows and programs that we have for you, we're excited about it. We trust that you are. We've heard from many of you recently via messenger and email, but we'd love to hear from all of you. Please do make sure to check out The Soul Trap on Facebook. You can message us there. We'd love to have you share The Soul Trap. You can also email us at pastortillis at suncoastbaptistchurch.org. That's pastortillis at suncoastbaptistchurch.org. And we'd love to hear from you. Wish all of you the best. And we always consider it an honor to be able to come to you and share our thoughts and ideas and then to be able to hear from you. And to be honest with you, a lot of times we're getting great feedback from you guys, the listeners. Um, I really consider you to be teammates, um, a part of this journey with me. And we're getting a lot of feedback, some good leads. We've got some great shows coming up, I think, in the, in the near future, uh, having to do directly with leads that have been given to us by uh, Soul Trap listeners. So glad to have you listening wherever you're listening to this. Uh, thank you so very much, and it's great to have you on board. I was reading through the Bible the other day and came across a verse that really is going to launch us into what we're going to be discussing today. And uh, it was in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, verse number 10. I'm not going to take a whole lot of time for context and uh, exegete the verse and all of that. I simply want to read it and I want you to listen to it as Paul is speaking here to Christians in this dispensation when he says, for this cause... Ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels? Now, if you have a Schofield reference Bible, he actually adds a, an additional uh, maybe interpretation when he says, i.e., of the presence of the angels. What are angels doing? What does women's hair have to do with it? And why in this dispensation would we be concerned at all about angels? However you want to explain that verse... It is at least a cursory acknowledgement of the obvious, that angels are reality, at least in some way, especially to the New Testament believer. Likewise, Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 warns the New Testament believer when we are told, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. That's an interesting phrase to be written to a New Testament Christian, worshiping of angels. The verse goes on to say, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Angels. The Apostle Paul in Colossians and even in 1 Corinthians is warning us that there is a line of interference, a line of inquiry even, that we are to guard closely and even avoid. Paul's warning in Galatians also mentions angels. Again, not something we often think about in this dispensation of time, and yet we're warned in Galatians. In verse 8, when he says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, 
let him be accursed. Hmm. That's an interesting phrase. Is that exaggeration? Is he drawing a contrast of extremes to prove a point? Or is there something deeper there? Maybe not necessarily now, but in the future. The truth is, Paul's warning in Galatians about an angel preaching another gospel really begins to take on a great deal more doctrinal depth when we admit the obvious that in the book of Revelation, the angels in the churches of Revelation are indeed angels, not messengers, not pastors of the church, but but they are real angels, which make us wonder for a moment and maybe for another podcast at another time exactly what the nature of the church and life in general will be during the tribulation period. But angels... Most people's doctrine of angels goes no further than Billy Graham's or the Hallmark Channel's idea of what an angel is. But in reality, there is a pantheon of beings that we tend to forget about as Christians. Beings, ranks, order, there is a dimensional world populated more so than we could ever imagine. Seraphim, cherubim, thrones, dominions, strongholds, powers, principalities, rulers, archangels, angels, devils, demons evil spirits, the list is, is very, very long in its breadth, and they play a prominent role throughout the Bible. The fact of the matter is, your Bible is, first and foremost, a supernatural spiritual book. So the question behooves us, as we basically dive into a little angelology 101, what does the Bible say about angels, and what can we know of angels? What should we know of angels? And what, if anything, are we experiencing of angels today? The first time the word angel appears in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 16, verse 7. But that is not chronologically where they are found. Angels are also closely, if not directly, tied to the host of heaven. And that term can mean literal stars, i.e. the host of heaven, but can also mean host in the sense of an army, a population of beings. That phraseology prop, pops up in Deuteronomy and 2 Kings and 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Bible says, "...unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven..." And when thou seest the sun, the moon, and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Very profound verse, having no doubt, I believe, a direct connection with the zodiac. In Second Kings chapter 23, the Bible says, And he put down the idolatrous priests, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places, in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal and to the sun, to the moon, and to the planets, and to all the host of heaven. In Second Kings and First Kings, the Bible says, And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left hand. So the fact of the matter is, is that angels almost immediately in the Bible are directly, if not emphatically connected in some way, shape, or form with the stars, with the heavenly host that we see above us. Now, if you're going to get a book on angels, I would highly recommend Jeffrey W. Martis, 
his book, What Dwells Beyond. What Dwells Beyond. In fact, a listener to The Soul Trap actually directed me to Mardis' work, and I find it to be an absolutely exhaustive source of material for these kind of things that we discuss here. And in his book, he deals at a great extent with angels and what they are and what they are not. And I want to quote just a little bit from him, but I highly recommend that you, you get your own copy. Angels, God's written word, lists them as 297 references. In other words, the word angel crops up 297 times. Most of these angels are the angels of God in heaven, quote unquote. But an undisclosed number are servants of the devil. The angels of Satan are often referred to as fallen angels. Though interestingly enough, the Bible never uses the term or the phrase fallen angel. A Bible study will reveal that angels are also called heavenly host. You can find that, as we've already mentioned in the previous verses, but also in Luke chapter 2, Psalms chapter 148, and Nehemiah chapter number 6. This title not only refers to all the host of heaven, but in a more specific context, it refers to the angels, both good and evil. Satan and his angels have access to the third heaven, and they are not necessarily cut off. That will happen at some point in the future, according to the book of Revelation. But now, and until that time, the angels of the devil will also be known as heavenly host. Then the term is also used, spirits. Again, this is found in Hebrews chapter 1 and Psalms chapter 104. The title reveals that angels are spirit beings. Now, many Christians misread this to imply that angels are spirits only. But this is not so. Like their creator, angels may have at least a dual sense of nature, if not a tripart. They do have a spirit, but they also appear to have a physical body. Their physical body, however, is not bound to the dimensional bindings of this world in which you and I live. It is immortal. It is not a natural body like fallen man, but a supernatural spiritual body. And that may be exactly what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 44, that there is a spiritual body. The angels' bodies in this dimension are profoundly connected with light, invisibility, super speed, super strength, and the alteration of dimensional perception, which, if you match up what I just said with UFO and abduction cases, you will be surprised at the connectivity that you find there. Angels are not just mentioned as angels and heavenly hosts and spirits, but also as stars. In Revelation chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 9, Chapter 12, Daniel chapter number 8, stars can refer to both those tiny points of light that we are told are billions and billions of miles away, but they can also refer to angels. In Job chapter 38 verse 7, the Bible says that the stars sing together. And in fact, that verse may even subdivide them. uh, Job chapter 38 verse 7 says, when the morning stars sang together and... All the sons of God shouted for joy. Of course, that happened in Job chapter number 38, verse 6, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. But they are referred to as stars before the very foundation of the earth was laid. And they are referred to as innumerable. Genesis 15, Jeremiah 33, Hebrews chapter number 12. They can also radiate light, according to Genesis 1, Psalms 148, Luke 2, Acts 12, and Acts chapter 10. They have names. Just as stars are named, so 
Uh, Do the angels appear to have names? Both occupy the heavens, both the second and the third. When the heathen and Israel, Martis writes, were driven to worship the host of heaven, they often used the symbol of a star to represent their false god, according to Amos chapter 5 and Acts chapter 7. And likewise, when the first stars came to earth, both they and their offspring became famous. The scriptures call them mighty men, men of renown. Because of this precedent, modern vernacular oftentimes labels our most famous and high-profile individuals as stars, movie stars, or getting your Hollywood star in the walk of fame there. Again, a profound connectivity. Now, this is where we get really into the strange stuff. Angels can also be referred to not only as heavenly hosts and spirits and stars, but they can be referred to as men. A careful study of scripture will make it very clear that angels look exactly like human men and often are even misidentified as being such. In fact, it was a common practice in the scriptures to use the word men or man as a substitute for the word angel. In Genesis chapter 19, the angels who appeared a lot both appeared to be men. In Judges chapter 13, the angel which appeared to Manoah and his wife, Samson's parents, appeared as a man. In Numbers 22, the angel who appeared to Balaam appeared as a man. In Judges 6, the angel who appeared to Gideon looked like a man. In Genesis 16, the angel who appeared to Hagar looked like a man. The list could go on and on. The angel that Cornelius saw was not some cherub with wings, but a man. The angel sent to destroy Israel looked like a man in 1 Chronicles 21. The angels which rolled back the stone at the sepulcher of Christ both appeared to be young men. The angel Gabriel appears as a man. The angel who loosed Peter from prison appears as a man. Michael, the very archangel himself, appears as a man in Jude 1 and Revelation 12. The angel that binds the devil and casts him into the bottomless pit is pictured as a man. In fact, the appearance of angels and men match so closely that the Bible even warns us that we may even encounter angels without realizing it, according to Hebrews 13, quote, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. An angel that visits earth, whether good or evil, would simply appear as a human man with superhuman powers. Remember that. Super strength, the power of flight, the power to control certain elements like fire, water, wind, invisibility, telekinesis, all of these angelic abilities and more are found in the scriptures. Oh, and by the way, they're not only found in the scriptures, they're found in the modern day myth of our culture. There's a great book called Our Gods Wear Spandex that connects our modern fascination with superheroes to the ancient mythologies, both sets of which represent beings from other dimensions, intruding themselves into ours with powers beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. Now, most of the time when you and I see angels portrayed, whether it's at the Bible bookstore or on TV, it is as a female with wings. And yet, the Bible is very clear that that is never as an angel appears. Angels are always men and never depicted as having wings. In fact, the only winged female that you find in the Bible 
is a wicked demonic spirit in Zechariah chapter number 5, verse 7 through 9. Angels are also referred to as sons of God. In Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, as we read just a moment ago, Job chapter number 38, verse 7, and of course that most famous of all passage, Genesis chapter number 6. The final alternate name for the angels, and most controversial in, in some circles, is that term, sons of God. And as Mardis writes in his book, controversial or not, however the word of God reveals that the born-again Christian is not the only son of God found in the Bible. Specifically, there are three different types described. The only begotten of God, referring to Jesus Christ, of course. And then there is the adopted sons of God. Then there are the created sons of God. Very important, important doctrinal definition there. The created sons of God. Created sons of God have no earthly parents, but are direct creations made in his image, i.e. they look like men. It is to this category into which both Adam and the angels belong. Both Adam and the angels belong. Now, contemporary thinking teaches that all angels are, quote, messengers. But this narrow description, one writer says, of angels is arrived at by looking up the Hebrew and Greek word for the meaning, malach and agelos, respectively, instead of relying upon the scripture to interpret themselves. A thorough search of the Bible will reveal that the role of the angel far outstrips any simplistic description than that of a quote-unquote messenger. Many angels never relay any message at all. Instead, the purpose for the angel is shown by Scripture to carry out the judgments of God, to carry out the operative power of God in this dimensional dispensation. Also referred to as destroying angels or evil angels, these beings are responsible for the dispensing of the sword, the pestilence, famine, plagues, etc. upon man as directed by the Lord. And there is a vast array of Scripture dealing with them. Genesis 19 2 Samuel 24, 2 Kings 19, 1 Chronicles 21, 2 Chronicles 20, Psalm 78, Isaiah 37, Ezekiel 14, Jonah 3, Revelation 8, 9, 15, etc., etc. There is a plethora of information about these angels which look so much like men you would not be able to differentiate them except for their quote-unquote superhuman Justice League, Marvel Avenger-like power. The truth of the matter is, the fact that angels appear as men is probably something far greater than we actually realize. In another great book, I would highly recommend, one of the great uh, theological studies I have is volume number two, Theological Studies by Dr. Peter S. Ruckman. I quote from him when I say, the word angel, contrary to the nonsense being taught at Christian schools, does not mean basically messenger, material that we have already mentioned just, just previously. As a matter of fact, many angels have nothing to do with messages at all. Angels are quote-unquote ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now what's interesting about that is, is that that verse right there is what, in, in a, what I would consider a tribulation book, Hebrews. It's going to be very interesting to find out the interplay between angels and the people of God during that seven-year tribulation period. And I don't necessarily know that after the rapture, the tribulation, and I don't want to digress here too far, but the tribulation doesn't begin technically at the end of the rapture or because the rapture takes place. The tribulation period begins with the breaking of the seals, and I believe the revelation 
of the son of perdition. So there may be a some type of time period between uh, the rapture and the tribulation, but we digress. Rugman states there are no angels with wings contrary to the pictures found in every dime store in the United States. If you will study angels, you will find in Genesis chapter 19 and 20 that they are young men. In Revelation 21, it is a man. And if some have entertained angels unaware, then don't you think for a minute that angels have wings? They do not. Every angel in the Bible appears to be a young male, possibly around the age of 33, without wings. There also appears to be a usage of the word angel of God or the angel of the Lord in connection with Jesus Christ. For instance, in Galatians chapter number 4, Jesus is called the angel of God. In Acts chapter 27, when Paul is on board the ship, he said, For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and who I serve. The Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament appears as, quote, the angel of the Lord. And of course, this is a theophany, an appearance of God. Every angel in the Bible, then, is an appearance. Michael the archangel, instead of being a messenger, stands as the prince, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. The nations have appearances of angels as well in heaven, represented by angels. Children, likewise, appear to have angels represented. Local churches as well seem to have representative angels, according to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. They have appearances in heaven, and that is the same thing. For down here, it appears that almost everything down here has a counterpart in some way, shape, or form, quote-unquote, up there. It's very interesting that in the popular show, Stranger Things, the other dimension, the negative side of the dimension, is called the upside down. I wonder what the good side would be called. The right side up? Angels, according to the Bible, are able to travel great distances in a very short amount of time, if indeed our distance measurement is correct, as we are told. They are wiser than men, according to 2 Samuel chapter 14. They are strong. In fact, one angel will one day bind the devil and imprison him for a thousand years. Stars, as we have already mentioned, are called angels and vice versa in the book of Revelation. And note in particular, Revelation chapter number 9, verses 1 through 2. Angels are immortal without material body in the same material way that we are. Now, the Bible says that when the Lord and the two angels met Abraham, they sat down in the tent door and were able to eat. We know that Jesus in his glorified body was able to eat fish on the seashore of Galilee in John chapter number 21. So to simply say that an angel does not have a material body and is not able to interact on a physical way with us I think is short-sighted. They do have a body in the sense that they are able to copulate with women, I believe according to Genesis chapter number 6. They are able to eat, they are able to interact, and yet they are also able to manipulate and at the very least reshape the very fabric of our dimension. They're not bound to the same dimensional laws that you and I are. The Bible is very clear, though, that angels are not sexless. They are not unable to quote-unquote marry. In Matthew chapter 22, most fundamentalists and people that read the Bible assume that because angels are not given in marriage, this means that they are not able to actually procreate. And yet the Bible is very clear that that is exactly what happened in Genesis chapter number 6. The only people that don't see that are people that don't want to see that.
The cross-reference there to sons of God is found in Job 1 and Job 38. The Bible also appears to tell us that angels are innumerable, both in Revelation 5, Matthew chapter 26. Now, I think it is very interesting to think about angels, again, in the future, in connection with Revelation chapter number 12. I want to, again, maybe step out a little bit off the reservation here, but as we venture into some deep waters, I think it's very interesting to think about the attempt of counterfeit that Satan has. In John chapter number 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And Jesus states that he goes to prepare a place for us. Who are the us that he is preparing a place for? The city of New Jerusalem, the sons of God, you and I, creations, the new birth. Well, if Revelation chapter number 12 is past tense, then we don't have anything to worry about. But if it is in the future, in the sense that Satan will yet in the future lead one-third of the heavenly host to rebel against God, is Satan now preparing a place for the future fallen sons of God? We leave our speculation there, but it is very interesting to think about the connection of angels in the tribulation and those one-third that will follow Satan. What will be the promise that he will promise them, that they would leave their habitation? Could it be a return to the promise of Genesis 6, cohabitation with women? There is also another great book written by G.H. Pember called Earth's Earliest Age. Again, I don't agree with everything in this book. But there are some strange and yet depthy passages within this book. And in discussing the debate as to the power of angels to procreate or even to materialize, he states the following, quote, Seeing that angels can so materialize to themselves bodies as to eat the food of men, to draw lot by their hands, etc., there need be no difficulty in believing them able to perform other bodily functions, if they so wish. If Matthew be urged to the contrary, it may be pointed out that our Lord states what is the condition of things in heaven. He does not allege that angels cannot violate the order and act otherwise on earth. Whilst in Jude, verses 6 and 7, we are plainly told that there have been, quote, angels who kept not their own, and he uses the term principality, but left their proper habitation. And it is explained that Sodom and Gomorrah, in going after strange flesh, sinned like these angels. The thoughtful, we say, will consider these facts in scriptures and will not fail to note that this abhorrent and terrible subject is of practical moment, insomuch as the Son of God has forewarned us that the days before his appearing again on earth will present a true likeness to the days of Noah and to the state of Sodom in the days of Lot. Let the modern Westerner marvel and cavil if he please. But these stones plainly tell us that the men of old knew the possibility of these dark things. And Genesis 6 tells us who were the real gods of paganism, who thus for the purpose of debasing mankind left their proper habitation, namely rebellious angels who look like men. Whatsoever things were written aforetime, Pember states, were written for our instruction. Again, you can see that there is a real profound connection there. Now let's backtrack just a little bit with something that Pember stated there. 
he used and changed up the verses there of the Bible just a bit, but he's talked about, and I'm looking right here at the book, in Jude 6 and 7, we are told that the angels who kept not their own principality, but left their proper habitation. Let's read that directly from the Bible. And let's see exactly what scripture says about that. Because I think when you begin to take a look at what those words are, it gives you an idea of what took place and what may take place yet again. Scripture says in Jude 6, and the angels which kept not their first estate, keep that word in mind, but left their own habitation, estate and habitation. Very, very important words there. Pember states it this way. He says, reading Genesis 6, it is observed that certain beings termed sons of God are said to have consorted with the daughters of Adam. Who are these sons of God? The contrast between the two terms suggests other than human beings. For the natural description of the latter would be sons of Adam. If the Sethites and Canaanites were men, why were not those terms used? For so that therefore there would be no ambiguity. The presumption that angelic beings are meant is strongly confirmed when it is found that in other places in Scripture where this exact term is employed, it plainly means angels. That this is the meaning is further established by the statement of the Holy Spirit through Jude, that there were, at an earlier period, angels who kept not their own estate, their assigned region of the universe, but left their proper habitation. Only elsewhere used in 2 Corinthians verse 2 to be clothed upon with our quote-unquote habitation which is from heaven. Now, you have to keep in mind that Pember is fairly loose in using the Greek and the Hebrew as he wants to use it. But I want you to understand that when we're talking about angels, we're not talking about beings that are uh, winged creatures flying around. We're talking about beings that look human, so much human you wouldn't even know you're in the presence of one, and yet powerful beings beyond anything we can imagine. And in Jude, we're told that they left their habitation, left their estate. Now, you don't have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar. Just get your Noah Webster's 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language and look up the word habitation. What does the word habitation mean? It means active inhabiting, state of dwelling, place of abode, a settled dwelling, a mansion. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. In my Father's house are many mansions. Hmm. What a connection. Is that what Satan is promising one-third of the future angels? That he is preparing for them a place? Wait a second. What if we cross-reference that mansion and that place, not only to a physical place, a, a dimensional location like heaven and New Jerusalem, but what if we connected that to an actual glorified body? According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul compares our current living estate to a tent and our future one to a great mansion, a great glorious abode, is that the promise that Satan is making to one-third of the angels in heaven? I am preparing for you a new habitation, a sensual body. Isn't that what the warning that Jude mentions over there in the book of Jude, chapter number 1? Verse number 19, these be they who separate themselves from what? Sensual, having not the spirit. The word habitation means active inhabiting, state of dwelling, place of abode, a settled dwelling, a mansion, a house. And then he uses this term. The stars may be the habitation 
of numerous races of beings. Hmm. I'm sure that that's coincidence. Don't get me wrong. I don't believe Webster's 1828 is inspired. But I want you to get what it's talking about when it talks about these angels who left their habitation. They left their place of abode. But what does the word estate mean? Well, the word estate means, in a general sense, fixedness, a fixed condition. It means a condition or circumstance of any person, rank, quality, fortune. The main sense there is condition or circumstance. Well, what does the word condition mean? It means a state of being, a particular mode of being. It can be applied to external circumstances. It can be applied to the mind. It can be applied to things. It can also be applied to the body. These angelic beings left their habitation, their habitat, their dimension. They left their estate, their condition of being. These beings left to impose themselves into a dimensional reality in Genesis chapter number 6. And it is something that has been going on and I believe will continue to go on in a very profound way. The doctrine goes on to unfold because angels are directly involved in the dimensional world affairs. We know that by Daniel when he prayed. Daniel prayed waiting upon the angel to come who was limited by the prince of Persia. There's also the prince of Greece. Herod was struck by an angel eaten of worms. We also know that these powerful beings, these angels, were in existence prior to this current creation. As we already mentioned, they were there at the very beginning. Job 38, beginning in verse 4, is some of the most interesting verses about the nature of being and angels themselves. The Bible says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Isn't that fascinating verbiage there? Um, just by a side note, please don't think I'm crazy. I just want to ask you something. If you had no NASA to tell you how to think, if you had nothing in front of you except for your plain senses, and the Bible. What shape would you think these verses is describing when it talks about the earth? The foundations of the earth. Hmm. Uh, a line stretched upon it. The foundations fastened. A cornerstone. I digress. Let me stay on task. Verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The truth of the matter is the sons of God were probably there in Genesis chapter number 1 verse 1 when God said, let there be light. Genesis 1.1 may have been the foundation of the world that Lucifer was actually to rule before the fall of Isaiah chapter number 14. There's also an unbelievable passage in the Bible over in Kings, where it says, And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the, here it is, host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. 
And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. Isn't that a fascinating, fascinating passage of Scripture? Okay, if you can explain that one, please do. I would love to hear that fully exegeted. I get all the words and I understand what they mean, but I don't think that there is really anyone that can fully unpack the ramifications of that passage, as they like to say. Because the ramifications of what we are reading are way, way, way beyond my pay grade. Angels are also mentioned in Psalms chapter number 78, verse 49. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation, and trouble by sending evil angels among them. So how did God execute his wrath and indignation and trouble? By sending evil angels among them. Let that sink in a little bit. So what exactly did these evil angels do? We're not told. Where do they live? How do they operate? We don't know. But we do know that part of God's judgment was supernatural dimensional beings mingling themselves among the people and causing wrath, indignation, trouble. Sound like America? Hmm. Of course... This might just be chalked up to random speculation of a bunch of Bible geeks. But secular history has even testified to the stars coming down among the daughters of men. Only the most obtuse would ever deny that something like that happened. I find it also fascinating that in Exodus chapter number 12, we often overlook what exactly happened on the night of Passover. But it was not just the firstborn that were judged. It was the gods of Egypt, the Bible says, that were judged as well. Pharaoh and his gods, ten plagues unleashed on the ten key gods of Egypt, plus Pharaoh. Sound familiar? Sure it does. Pharaoh's a type of the Antichrist. And there were ten gods, just like Antichrist will have ten kings ruling with him in the book of Revelation. And even pop culture itself, as harmless and as vapid as it appears to be, seems to carry on with the connectivity. If you want to know what angels look like, and if you want to know and understand what angels may be in the future, you don't necessarily have to check the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Sumerian text or even your King James Bible. Maybe just go down to the net, go down to Netflix or Redbox and see if you can get the movie Superman 2. Superman. Truth, justice, the American way. Ah, yes. Superman. The most famous superhero of all. The man that comes from a far away planet. A man that draws his strength from Ra, I'm sorry, from the sun. A sun worshiper. A man who is cared for by two human parents, Adam and Eve. Farmers, mind you, very similar to Cain. A man with powers beyond anything that you can imagine. A man that actually falls in love with an earth girl and decides to leave his first estate and his habitation in order to procreate with her. But then, when the evil general Zod, 
not God, but Zod, comes, who has two companions with him, three, the divine number. And of course, they were imprisoned in the phantom zone, all three in one, hint, hint. So to fight this evil god, I'm sorry, Zod, Superman ascends back to the north, where he regains his power and defeats the evil Zod, marries the earth girl, and has a son called the son of Superman. You see, there is always a connection. You just have to see it through the lens of the Bible, which is why you, why you might want to remember one more thing about Superman. Up, up, and away. Amen to that. Even so, come Lord Jesus, because I am ready for up, up, and away. <laughs>